Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for the opportunity to get together um, as a, a body of believers. Lord, we thank you for this place that you've given us to meet for this time. And we thank you for uh, allowing us to wake up and have breath in our lungs. And Lord, we thank you for just the, um, just the grace and the mercy that you show us every day, Lord. Um, the perfect grace, the perfect mercy. Lord, I pray that you would be with us here today, Lord. I pray that you'd fill this room with your spirit. I pray that your word would pierce between bone and marrow. Lord, I pray that your word is heard and taught and nothing of my own is being brought out, Lord. I pray that you would um, just bless this time and bless the, the reading and the hearing of your word. We love you and we praise you. Um, humbly we come before you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. Um, let's go to back in 2 Timothy. We'll be finishing actually uh, the second chapter today and then start beginning the verse 3. The moths are back. Yay. Sorry, the moths are everywhere here. Um, so we'll be finishing 2 Timothy chapter 2, and so we're going to read verses 20 through 26, and then um, that'll be good. So let's go to the Word. If you've opened your book, Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 20. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver, silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of these things, from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So we memorized, I did Bible quizzing with the youth for a long time. Uh, we memorized this a few years ago. I think they're, y'all are doing Second Timothy this year too, right? Yeah. Um, which is amazing how I don't, I didn't keep up with like I should have, of course. But as I've been studying this and um, coming back to reading it, it's amazing how it just pops in my mind. But Second um, Timothy 25 um, and 26 um, are, I would necessarily, necessarily my life first, but I really love those verses. One, because I have a tendency to, um, not be gentle sometimes when correcting others or when confronting non-believers or confronting uh, especially false teachers. Um, so this is a reminder. I always try to think of this verse before I go into situations like that to be gentle. Um, so I just want to throw that out there a little bit. Those are my, I love those verses. So but let's get into this. Um, has anybody seen Batman, the, new, the old Batman with uh, Chris uh, Nolan, with uh, Christian Bale? You raise your hand, you know what I'm talking about, maybe? Okay, so in the second one, when you had the, the Dark Knight, in the beginning, uh, you'll probably remember, they had all these fake Batmans, right? And they came out and they were going to, they were their own vigilantes and they thought they could help Batman out. But the, the prisoner, I think of Scarecrow was the first one, realized pretty quickly that they weren't the real Batman, right? They were like, they pulled out guns, they had knives, they were overweight, they had hockey gear on, I think it was. And these criminals were like, didn't, they made fun of them. And then when Batman came with his car and all that stuff and broke through, they're like, now that's the real Batman. And I bring that up just as an analogy of what's going on here. I struggled. I've, been, I've struggled with this verse, verse 20. My wife could probably tell you this. For, I taught this in the youth for a, for a while. 
I mean, I meditated on it, I've contemplated it. Um, because of the last verse when it says, there are some vessels for honor and then there are some vessels for dishonor. And I struggle to say, is this, is this talking about believers and non-believers? But we had to really go back to verse 19. And when verse 19 says, the firm foundation of God's house and it will stand. And the Lord knows who are his. And even when it calls the name of the Lord is abstained from wickedness. He's then coming in and he starts 2 Timothy verse, two, or verse 20. And he says, now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. So when we see, we can see, look back with verse 19 and see that the large house is the church. So Paul again is describing the church here. And he's saying in the church, we have honorable vessels and we have dishonorable vessels. So the, as I'm reading and I'm studying, there were two main thoughts here. There are two strains of thoughts. One is that there are believers who just don't do anything, right? So there are people that accept Christ, call on the name of the Lord, become believers, but then their works are, are worthless. And we can see that as an example in 1 Corinthians 3.15. It says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And that's an image. I see this guy who's tried to do stuff for Christ, but all his work was burned up. It wasn't any good. And he's crawling into heaven with his clothes on fire. And I've, that just, it amazes me just to think of that stuff, that who God uses and who he doesn't use. So that's one, that's one way to think about it, that, of course, they're all believers. Some do good, some, some do good. The second thought is that the honorable vessels, of course, are believers, but the dishonorable vessels are false teachers. The false teachers that Timothy has been warning, I mean, that Paul has been warning Timothy about through the first Timothy and second Timothy. But then after a long time meditating this verse and studying this verse, I think it's both. And let me explain what I mean by that. I think in the church, I think he's definitely talking about the church, and he's talking about individuals within the church. But as we know, in the church, there are people that profess Christ. But on the last day, Jesus will say, depart from me, for I never knew you, right? And then I do believe there's people in the church that can be doing good things, but doing them in the wrong way, right? And there are also ways that there are people in the church that go to a wrong church, say a charismatic church, say there's some people in, I'm going to call out names this time, Joel Olstein's church, that they're just lost and confused and they've been deceived by the false teachers, but yet they are believers. So I take a, a, a quote, you know, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? So what I think Paul is talking about here is to Timothy is saying, look, you have both people in your church. But when it's in the church, and you go back to verse 19, those who call on the name of the Lord are abstained from wickedness, right? So if you are a believer, or you claim to be a believer, you're in the church, you're going to be held by the elders and by the leaders of the church to a different standard than unbelievers, right? And we'll get into the little, that a little bit in a little bit on, the, on when we clean out the hurt stuff. So when we look at this, I think they're all kind of right, like I just said. So we have people in the church that do nothing but are believers. You have people at church that do stuff that aren't believers. But the point is, is that they are all in the large house. They all are still in the church. And we need to see that as a different way than those are outside the church. And this is not the only place where Paul kind of talks about this, right? Romans 9, 21 through 23. 
It's a kind of a correlation to this. It says, or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So Paul is going on to tell Timothy how he needs to proceed in leading the church and how to identify those who are honorable vessels and which are the dishonorable vessels. But I think it's amazing how God uses the body, right? We know that the body is made up of different parts. Paul goes on to explain that in Corinthians when he talks about the foot, the eyes, the ears. Everybody's different. And I do believe that God uses the weaker vessels or the dishonorable vessels to strengthen the honorable vessels. And then vice versa, he uses the honorable vessels to encourage and to bring up the dishonorable vessels, right? And so that's what we have a contrast here is when we look through this, we're going to see, we're mainly going to focus this time on the honorable vessels and see the characteristics of what an honorable vessel is. But as you see that, you're also going to see what a dishonorable vessel is. And hopefully this will encourage you to pursue the honorable way and not the dishonorable way. So let's look. So let's start my first point. Honorable vessels are cleansed. Verse 21, it says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. The cleanse here is a very strong verb. It means to clean out thoroughly, to completely purge. Got a great example of this. My wife. So I used to, before I had this job, I had a job where I traveled a lot. So I'd leave on a Monday uh, fly out on Monday, and I'd usually fly back on a Thursday or Friday. So I was gone most of the week. I don't like to throw stuff out. You never know when you're going to need it again, right? I don't care if you're, you get a part and it has, comes with extra pieces, an extra bowl, an extra nut. I put it aside because you never know when you're going to use it again. And honestly, after a certain age, you stop growing, right? So I don't throw my clothes away. I had one shirt that was uh, three stooges. It was curly, and it was his face in like a dot pattern. That thing had holes all in it, but I love the shirt. I got so many compliments on the shirt. Never saw another shirt like that, but I wouldn't throw it out. But when I would travel, I would come home, and all my stuff would be gone. My wife would purge my closet and get rid of most of my stuff that I actually liked, right? I did a lot, but I, I, I had the armpit stains, the yellow. It was, it was disgusting. It probably needed to go, but... The point is, she cleaned it out much better than I would have cleaned it out, and she got rid of all that stuff. And she's good at that. Probably not even that. Probably, what, once a month if she gets bored. She, sometimes she can't sleep at night, so I wake up, and she's rearranging all the closets and the cabinets again, and I never know anything's at. Once a month, you've got to go back and open everything up to see where stuff is. But that's what she's doing. She's cleaning out. She is purging the things. And that's what we're called here to do as honorable vessels. We need to purge these things from us. And that makes he will be a vessel for honor. So if we purge, what is he talking about? What do we need to clean ourselves from? I think you've got to go back to the first couple of verses in, uh, in 14, or 15 and 16. We've got to cleanse ourselves of worldly and empty chatter. We've got to cleanse ourselves of the false teachers that are around us at all times. We've got to let our mind completely purged of all those ideas and not to try to bring them in again. Uh, one of the commentaries I love to use, of course, is MacArthur. All right, we've got to use MacArthur stuff for this church, but I love his things, but... Part of this in here, he was talking about um, just the mind and what you take in. If you don't get yourself cleaned out, which is once you see something, once you take it in, which when I'm going to read this, is, if you already know this, it's amazing. But once you take something in, once you see something, once you hear something, our minds are amazing. And they'll lock onto that. And they'll keep it in here somewhere. Now, as we get older 
And we have more and more stuff in here. We may not recall that we know it, but it does lay there in our subconscious. And that's what I used to, when I tell the youth, it's like, it doesn't, you think you can get past the stuff you see and the stuff you take in, but it's really hard to do that. So it's keep your mind clear from a young age will help you to be better as you get older. The more that you can learn scripture at a young age, that's why I love the quizzing. The more that you can put scripture in your mind and your heart at a young age, the better it's going to be as you go forward, right? So I encourage that. But what he says here, he says, of the 10 billion or so cells in the human brain, by far the majority are used for memory. Isn't that amazing? 10 billion cells in our brain, the majority are used for memory. And although the ease of forgetting makes it hard to believe, scientists have determined that everything the brain register, registers, it retains. I don't feel like that sometimes. Do y'all feel like that? <laughs> I feel like I can't retain hardly anything anymore. So it's just amazing. But it says the passing of time and the lack of use make information harder and often impossible to retrieve. But all the information received is still there, no matter how far it recedes from consciousness. The memory cells are interconnected by equally microscopic fibers, which enable stored facts, ideas, visual images, feelings, and experiences to be associated with each other to produce thought patterns, which store still more permanent information in the brain. Wow. Our brains are pretty powerful. And the issue there is, is once you get it in, like he's saying, you can't get it out. And then those things start to form thought patterns in your brain and make you think the wrong things. And so what he's saying here is you've got to get rid of all those things. And if you don't, you're just going to be a dishonorable vessel. You may have come to Christ. You may believe and put your faith in him. You may have called out in humbleness to the Lord. But yet, you let all the stuff get in and your thought patterns have been twisted. And you're not letting the new stuff to be renew your mind. Paul talks about time, right? Renew your mind. Be transformed, right? And so we have to do that. We have to push that stuff aside. It's not that we can't do it because guess what? When you become a believer, you have a little help, right? You got the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is so much more amazing than I think that we give him credit for sometimes and what he does in our lives, not just in our hearts and transform our lives and spirit and truth, but in our mind, he gives us the right things to think and the right things to do. Like he told the disciples, I will send you a comforter who will bring all these things I've taught you back to memory. That's a lot of stuff he taught them and a lot of stuff they forgot, but it was stored in there. All right, so if you cleanse yourself, what does he say here? He said, you will actually be a vessel for honor. And so he's telling them, if you get rid of all this stuff, now you can be a vessel for honor. You can be sanctified. I like this out there. It's kind of common. What does sanctified mean? Anybody know just off the top of your head? It's made holy, right? And what he tells us to be holy, to be set apart for holiness, right? So sanctified is, I'm going to set you apart to be holy for me. Right? So if we cleanse ourselves, we'll be a vessel of honor, we'll be set apart, we'll be made holy, and we'll finally be useful to the master. I think he's going back and he's thinking about the soldier, right? The soldier obeyed what the master told him to do. He told him that if you do not get entangled in the worldly affairs, but be focused on what those who enrolled you as a soldier told you to do. And that's how we'd be useful for the master. And then we prepare for every good work. So again, we need to cleanse ourselves of empty and unbiblical worldly talk, which can swoop in and quickly lead us astray. Even faithful teachers and elders. I mean, he's talking to Timothy here. Timothy was, had the gift. He had been led by Paul. He's warning him, do not get swept away with these things. And sometimes, unfortunately, a well-known unfaithful leader can be more damaging than an unbeliever, right? And unfortunately, it's because most people do not read their Bible themselves and they leave it up to the pastor to tell them what is in it. 
So sometimes if you're not doing your own work and your own studying, a pastor who thinks he's doing right but is not using Scripture the right way or twisting Scripture to appease or gets on a tangent about something from the pulpit that's not in Scripture can lead certain people astray. And you got to cleanse this stuff from it. And sometimes that's more damaging than when you get to talk to unbelievers, right? Because sometimes when we talk to unbelievers, we know what we're talking about. We know who we're coming up against, right? Because we know they don't believe in Scripture. We know they don't believe in God. And our goal to them is to do what? Is to preach the Word. Our goal to unbelievers is not to try to reason with them um, and debate them on things, as we've learned from the last week. Our goal with unbelievers is simply to preach the Word, to preach the Gospel, to show them Christ. And how they respond to that, that's fine. But those who are in the church, we are to handle a little different. 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 5, 9 through 13. This will all be familiar to you. If you want to turn there, it's a little bit of lengthy, so if you want to turn and read with me. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Paul says, I wrote in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters. For then, you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an adulterer, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are on the outside... God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And Paul goes on to so Timothy. He did this a few times, right? First Timothy 1, 19 through 20 says, Keeping faith and a good conscience with some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among those are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So you can see from this, what he's telling Timothy here is within the church, we handle those who are professing believers differently than we handle the outside world. We need to come alongside Timothy as elders and as strong believers, as honorable vessels. We need to come beside those in our church and we need to hold them accountable. And if they're not going to listen and they're going to keep practicing these sinful things and they're not going to abstain from wickedness, then we need to treat them and set them aside. But we don't do that with unbelievers. And again, I think that goes back to the explanation of verse 20 that honorable and dishonorable vessels are both believers within inside the church. And again, we don't know the hearts of everyone. Only God knows the hearts. So we are to do what Scripture tells us to do. Now let's look at the contrast. If you cleanse yourself of all these things mentioned above, you'll become set apart, useful to God, and able to do good works for him. Proverbs thirteen twenty says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So we need to make sure that we are associating ourselves with strong leaders Strong believers in Christ. This will help us become more honorable vessels. We need to seek out those in the congregation that we see as those type of men, right? So an honorable vessel cleanses himself of all that stuff. And he holds people accountable within the church. But yet he or she witnesses to the unbelievers. An honorable vessel who cleanses himself will surround himself or herself with Godly men and women. That's what an honorable vessel will do. Let's move on to the second characteristic of an honorable vessel. It says, Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace 
with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So the second characteristic of an honorable vessel is someone with a pure heart. Pure heart. How do we get a pure heart? First, we've cleansed everything. Now we're set apart. And we're doing these things. The pure heart, I believe, comes for the help of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit has to come inside ourselves, come inside of us, and help us to pure our hearts. But first, we have to flee from youthful lust. So we got to remember here, Timothy is probably in his mid-30s. Paul, of course, was in his 60s. So Timothy would still be considered a younger man. And I know we can see from the first Timothy that Timothy had a little bit of a struggle, I think, confronting the older men in the congregation even when he was, they were doing stuff wrong. Because uh, Paul encourages him to uh, confront older believers with respect, but yet he still is called to confront them. And so I think when we talk about youthful lust, we talk about the timidity, timidity that Timothy probably had. We talk about other things that not necessarily are sensual or sexual. I think sometimes when we use that word lust, it's gotten taken to a different, te- uh, different terminology in our day. So I think there's a lot of these words. But the flee here is imperative. It means to escape, to take flight, get as far away from those that claim to be believers so that you will not be contaminated. Get away from those who are false teachers, who are false in their acts. So we need to flee. Useful lust, again, is not necessarily a sensual man. It's sensual command here that, that, that he's talking about here. It's the worldly desires that we have in our heart. Think about it. What are some of the useful lusts that you can think in your heart? Some things that you desire, especially as a young person. What did you desire as a young person? Some of you are young people, so what do you desire now? Stephen? Being liked, yeah. People pleaser, right? I want people to like you, yeah. What else? Yeah. God for that, yeah. Selfish, everything about me, 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 yeah. You say me? Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't, you, oh, yeah. Yeah. So you just want to have fun, shy away from hard work and just be a kid, right? What are some things you think about as you start to get older, you get in your teenage years, you start to maybe have to go to college? What are some of the stuff you start desiring or lusting after? What did you say, fast car? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Fast car or a big truck, something like that, yeah. I remember, um, I remember when I was first married, I would always say, all I want is a truck, motorcycle, and a boat. Because <laughs> that's going to make me happy, yeah. No, it doesn't make you happy at all. Yeah, what worldly things, right? Material things is what we start to, to lust after and we start to do. And what he's telling him here is you got to put away those things because it's like we said, when you start to go after the material things, when you start to go after the worldly things, you're just desiring to please yourself, right? You're trying to make yourself happy. And as we know, that is not the life of a Christian. Our life of a Christian is to be a servant to everyone and anyone, Right? We are to lay down our lives for our brother and sister. We are to put ourselves aside and put others first. So those are some of the youthful, lusting things that we need to put aside. And so once we put those aside, to get a pure heart, we need to pursue four different things, he tells us here. And if you'll notice, when he says pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, 
What does that bring, bring about? Fruits of the Spirit, right? So it's interesting here because just because we have the Spirit within us doesn't mean we automatically tap into these things, right? We actually have to do some work on our own and we have to pursue these things. But do you see the contrast here? Contrast between an honorable and dishonorable vessel? You know, I look at an example today. You know, when you're a child, you want all these things. And I look around at our world today and I see, I mean, I think they say now the married couples, people are getting married later in life, like in their late 20s. Not even if they have kids, it's not until their 30s. And most of them, some people are just not want to have kids now. Now they call them what, fur babies? In the wrong industry. <laughs> they have animals they call their kids, which drives me crazy. Um, but they, you know, they've replaced humans with animals in their homes. And the way I see it is, it's these adults that didn't get their lust filled when they were kids. And now they have the money or the resources to be able to, to please themselves with these things. And they seek after that. And the bad thing is, if you can see, and God warned the Israelites of this, the generation after generation, now you can see that the kids coming up today, it's the same thing, right? So these parents now can afford to get, have all their stuff fulfilled, and then they have kids, they just try to make them as happy as they can be too. I mean, we're living in an age right now where it's, is, we have more resources, and there is, I know it seems like we're in depression and there's all recession and all that kind of stuff, but if you look around, I don't see a lot of people that have a need, right? Especially kids. I mean, kids get what they want, when they want, a lot of times, unfortunately. And it's not teaching them to appreciate things. It's not teaching them to pursue other things because their self is getting gratified. And so I see that all around the world. And then what happens is they don't grow up. And we're seeing that, aren't we? We're seeing 20-year-olds and 25-year-olds still living at home with mom and dad because they haven't grown up. They haven't put away the youthful lust and pursued these other things. You know, it's interesting. At this time, we all should be mature believers, especially when you're in your later life as you grow up. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So how do we pursue righteousness? And how do we put off these useful lusts? We get into the word of God. The word of God is the only one that can show us righteousness. And we're going to see over the next couple of verses that you have to first be living an honorable life before people will listen to what you have to say. Because as you live the life mentioned in the verses, it will help you to see the eternal picture and stay calm and gentle when we get to talking to the opposition. So we need to make sure that we're pursuing righteousness. And the pursue is not a lesser word. It is a command. We are to do this. We are continually to be pursuing this. It doesn't stop. It's an action that continues to happen. So we need to continue to be pursuing a righteous life. I know sometimes it kind of gets hard, right? Sometimes life gets busy. And sometimes the Bible kind of gets pushed away a little bit, sometimes unfortunately. But it shouldn't. If we want to pursue a righteous life, we have to be in the word. And we have to be constantly renewing our minds with the things that are in it. And having a righteous life, sometimes when people think of a righteous person, especially these days, they think of a legalistic person. I don't know if y'all think of that sometimes, but I do hear that a lot. Oh, he's a righteous person. He's legalistic. And the two are totally different, right? 
The Pharisees were living a, living a legalistic life, but they weren't righteous. But we know from plenty of examples in Scripture that there were righteous men who, on the outside, sometimes didn't seem to look too righteous, but God called them righteous. And it was because they were pursuing a life for Christ. I mean, David's a prime example of that. He was a man that was after God, called a man after God's own heart. He did some horrible things, but yet he would be considered a righteous man. So it's not necessarily acts that we do, although it does tend to lead, it should lead to that because we go back and be useful to the master for good works. But it needs to be on the inside and you need to be changed from the inside out. Galatians 5, 16 through 26. If you want to turn there, this is a longer passage too. Galatians 5, 16 through 26 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I have forewarned you, just as forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things, there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another or envying one another. You see the contrast there? You're going to put off all that stuff and you're going to be, seek righteousness. You're going to see the fruits of the Spirit, which are three of those he named here. And then further on in the scriptures, we look to be gentle with those who you come against who are in opposition of you. Like we need to have this attitude. And this will, this will permeate from your life. That's the righteousness that people will see. That's the righteousness that people have to see. So pursue righteousness. Next he says what? Pursue faith. This will also be translated faithfulness. I'm going to let y'all do this for me. Describe somebody that you think is a faithful person. You don't have to name them or anything, but describe what you think. Think of the most faithful person that you think of, that you can think of, and describe them. What does that mean? What does it mean to you? God-centered, God-focused, a faithful person, yeah. What else? Yeah. Their life is living out what they preach, right? 
Whatever they put on their Facebook page, they're actually, their life is like that, right? What else? Anything else? Yeah, Stephen. So obedience to, the, to a changed heart, yeah, living it out. Yeah, so I mean, I think those are all correct answers, especially when it comes from a biblical perspective. Trustworthy, right? You think of somebody that's trustworthy. If a faithful person is a trustworthy person, you all these things, you say are correct. If I ask you or I see you or you tell you do these things or you say you're going to do these things, then you do them, right? If you say you live this way, then you, we see that in your life, right? And so that is a faithfulness. That's a faithful person. And I think that's easier said than done sometimes. And I think he also what he's doing, Paul's doing here, he's going back and he's, again, going to the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer, right? The soldier was faithful because he obeyed his master. The athlete was faithful because he did it the right way. The farmer was faithful because he planted the seeds and he waited for the proper time to get the first, the reap the harvest. But he put in the hard work and received the harvest. So, again, I think he's bringing all these uh, symbolisms back up to Timothy here and tell him to be faithful. And then the next thing he says after produce, produce, uh, pursue faithfulness or faith is pursue love. Again, we, we, we hear the word love a lot. And again, this word here is translated the, the agape love, right, in the Greek. So this love, you probably have all heard this before, but I want to make sure it's a point here. This is not an emotional, lustful, feelings kind of love, right? I think we have a misdiagnosed or mistranslation of love or what love is in our world today. I use this example a lot because um, it just sticks to my, it sticks in my mind. Probably in 2001 or two, I think it's 2001, did a mission trip, which we probably wouldn't consider a mission trip, a mission trip to Czech Republic. It was a youth mission trip. We took some youth over there. It was a sports kind of mission trip. We went and did some evangelizing, but we also uh, were with a, a sports team there and evangelizing them. And um, when, we, when we got there one day, I don't remember exactly when, we were playing, I think, football, like flag football or touch football with these guys from Czech. And we played the game, and then afterwards, um, we are all eating, and Barry, who was the youth pastor at the time, got up and, and presented a message. And every time Barry would say, you know, we love you, he would use the word love, they would laugh. And he would say love, and then they would laugh. And it was very just odd, right? And the translator, he had to be translating everything. So at the end, Barry, we were all sitting around, and Barry saw the translator and he said, why, why every time I mention the word love, that we love you in Christ, we love you in this, then they laugh. And the translator was like, love is a, a, a huge word. It means so much over here that you're just throwing it out there. And they're saying, you just met us. You don't know us. How in the world could you ever love us? And I think we see that too. I think we, we, you, we throw that word love out too easily these days. And this love that he's talking about pursuing is a selfless love. This is a love that no matter what somebody does to you, it doesn't matter. You reciprocate back to them the godly attitude that we've been taught. It's that kind of love. It's the love that God has for us, right? I mean, God is, in John 4, 8, called God is love, right? But when we look at God, God is also just. He's also merciful. He's also graceful, gracious, but I think he is also abides by the law. But within that, we see that. How can that mean love when bad things happen, when there are still unbelievers, but God still takes care of that? That is the love, right? First Timothy 4.10, Paul says, to God, says of God, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, 
especially of believers. So why do I bring that verse out? Because I think that verse gets construed a little bit. It can also be uh, universal uh, atonement, but I don't want to get into that right now. But what he's saying here is, is that God, the living God, he is the Savior of all men, right? Not that they are saved to eternal life in heaven, not that they are saved and that they are Christians, but all men are saved because what do we all deserve? Death, right? For our sin, we should be killed immediately. We should be in hell. But God, in his love for the world that he created, he lets it sustain. He lets it keep going. And especially for believers means that he loves us in a different way, definitely, but that, with that ultimate love that he has, that we will have eternal life with him in heaven because we are believers and we are holding to the truth. So you can see by this verse that God loves even those that have rejected him by not instantly condemning them to death, and he still gives them good things. Matthew 5, 45 says, For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And for us, he has saved us to eternal life. So that's a different kind of love, I think. I know it is. It's an ultimate love. But it's a love that we are to foster. It's a love that we are to have for all that we come in contact with. And we are supposed to have an even more special love for the believers in the church. That's what calls us to be honorable vessels. Because when we love each other in the church, we are going to be self-sacrificing. We are going to lay down our lives for our brothers. Matthew 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So we need, as we think about love, I think we need to think about that kind of love, the ultimate love. And then he says to pursue peace. I think sometimes that's a hard one, that's a hard one too, right? Because we're supposed to be pursuing peace. We are to be at peace with all men. And I think sometimes it, that comes off a little different in different ways. I think sometimes we can see it as we can have peace with somebody, they not have peace with us, right? If we've done what we're called to do, it's not against our conscience that we haven't wronged them, we have gone to them, um, we have pr- approached them in the right way, uh, but yet they are still maybe angry with us in a way. But I can have a peace with them knowing that I've done everything right, right? I have a peace with them. Now it's on them to have a peace with me. And so I think we are able to do that. It's not always easy. But Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So we need to pursue peace with all men. Not an easy aspect. And we are not to do this alone either. We are to do it with other believers that are pursuing God with a pure heart. You see that in the end of the verse? Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. That's awesome. We don't have to do it alone. He didn't leave us here trying to fend for ourselves. He gave us the body to come alongside us, to lift us up, and to do it together. And we need to take advantage of that. When we're feeling alone or you're feeling like somebody's not there, reach out to somebody in the church. That's what they're here for. It doesn't have to be an elder. It doesn't have to be a deacon. It can be anybody. Just reach out to somebody if you're feeling alone and you need help. I think sometimes we need to be more visible with our struggles in the church. Because how do we help each other if we don't know what's going on? How can we be at peace with each other if we don't know that there may be a strife or there may be some intimacy between two people? If we're not open with each other, that'll never be, we'll never have to be that true peace that we're called to have. If you see somebody in the church that seems out and about, that seems lonely, reach out to them. Be at peace with them. 
We need to do this with each other. Look for those that you can see are pursuing God with a pure heart and come alongside each other. We are told to call out to the Lord to confess our sins and he will save us. And that's what it means to come a heart with a pure heart. Come together with a pure heart. And again, he's talking about believers here, right? Those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. He promises that they will save. That's a, he's, Paul uses that several times. Romans 10, 13, he says, for whoever will call the name of the Lord will be saved. First Corinthians, he calls, he, when he's doing the introduction, he says, those who have called on the Lord are called saints. So those who call on the Lord. So we come alongside each other as believers and we help pursue these things. All right, I need to speed up a little bit, sorry. All right, so next, to be a humble vessel, we are to, verse 23, we need to refuse foolish and ignorant speculation, knowing that they produce quarrels. Quarrels. All right, I think what's going on here now is, is Paul has taken not a huge transition, but he has transitioned a little bit here to a, we got to go against false teachers here. He's turning his attention now, this last section, more to the elders and more to the people that are in charge of the church. doesn't mean that it doesn't all go towards because we all should be striving for those qualifications of eldership and deacons. Um, but I think he has taken more of a turn here and hitting those. So what does he mean by that? So foolish. Foolish actually comes from the word um, in the Greek which is where we get moronic from, so moron, um, so moronic talk. It's just foolish. It's just plain dumb. And guess what he tells us in verse you know, 17? It returns empty, right? It's, it's void and it returns empty. So it's just dumb, plain talk. So we need to avoid dumb talk. Um, I think we can all figure out what dumb talk is a lot of times, so I won't hit on that too much. And then ignorant. Ignorant just means that you really don't know what you're talking about. That boy's ignorant, right? We've probably heard that a lot, so... Uh, I have. Um, that's good. <laughs> but yeah, but ignorant, like you just don't know. And sometimes we tend to uh, act like we know sometimes, and that just makes you look even more ignorant. So in my job, uh, I told you I, I sell animal stuff, but there are some, it's medicine, right? I didn't go to vet school. I didn't go to eight years of vet school. I went and was athletic training and that kind of thing. So I do have a little bit of a science background, but I'm that person with those 10 cells that it's way back in the back and I hadn't recalled in a long time. And sometimes I get doctors, for some reason, I don't know why, they think I know as much as they do. And they just like to throw out the big words and they like to talk about all the, sur- the surgeries or this disease state and this dog. And I can be ignorant and sit there and try to join along with them. But they're going to pre- seem pretty quick through me. So a lot of times I just have to sit there and go, I'm sorry, i got to stop. You have no idea what you're talking about. And then they can put a dumb term, dumb it down for me and then I understand a little bit. But it's just, if it doesn't have to do with my products, I don't know a lot of the stuff that they talk about. But... I try not to be ignorant because they're going to see right through that. So ignorance is just not knowing exactly what you're talking about. And then speculation. Speculation is someone who just acts like they know what really, what's really happening around, but they have no idea. There's no facts to back it up. Pretty much they're just making things up, right? And there's a lot of that these days. It's just a lot of speculation. The Internet has turned us into a lot of speculating fools because nobody truly knows what they're talking about half the time on the Internet. And the problem is people hear those things and they run with them and it's just it's it's lost so he's telling him is refuse these things refuse to even listen to ignorant moronic liars it's pretty much what he's telling timothy to do here don't even associate with them because you know what's going to happen it's going to produce a quarrel it's going to produce a fight right who in here has somebody that can get them riled up pretty quickly by saying some dumb things yeah, <laughs> we all should probably raise our hand on that one, right? So we need to avoid them because if we produce quarrels, that's not what a godly man is, right? 
especially a leader in the church, should not be quarrelsome, should not be fighting. And we do this, we, we can tend to lean on this and do this all the time, right? So we should not be quarrelsome. Verse 24, so Lord's bondservant, this is why I think he's turned towards the pastors here because he is talking now, when he refers to bondservant, it seems to be a more, it's still doulos, which is slave, but it's a bond slave, which is a deeper meaning here. And I don't want to get too far in the weeds with that. But Paul usually only refers to himself and to other elders or leaders of the churches as bond servants. Everybody's a servant, but these are bond servants, which is a, a stronger word here. And he's calling them not to be quarrelsome, but they've got to be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. Again, Paul is just reiterating some of the qualifications for eldership here, right, that we see in 1 Timothy and we see in Titus. But he's listing out a couple here to help illustrate how we have to approach or how teachers have to approach false teachers. So we need to be kind to all, you need to be able to teach, and you need to be patient even when wrong. I think that's the key, that last one. Patient when wrong. How hard is it for us to be patient when somebody has wronged us? Not get quarrelsome with them. Is that easy? Can I raise your hand? That's easy. When somebody wrongs me, I just walk away. Right? I'm just like, oh, that's, just rolls right off my back. Don't even care. No, what do we try to do? Start defending yourself. Sometimes, unfortunately, we probably go on the attack, right? So we attack them back. And again, what happens? Then we become quarrelsome. And we shouldn't be doing that, right? We need to learn from Scripture and not learn from the world, right? So what does Scripture say about being wronged? I think the ultimate example we can say here is Christ, right? And I don't have to turn to this. But, but this is Christ's teaching. He says, but I say to you, and this is Matthew 5, 39 through 44. He says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's our attitude when we're wronged. This is to turn the other cheek. And I think that's been used the wrong a lot. But that's what he's saying here. And this is how you do not take that wrong and take it selfishly. You just do what you're called to do through Scripture. We can look at examples of Christ's life. I was going to ask you guys to give me examples, but we're running out of time. So I'll just give a big one here. What happened when he was taken into custody? All those accusations that were false were thrown at him. They brought in false witnesses at him. And what did he do? He remained silent. Because what happens sometimes when we try to argue with people when we're wrong and we try to come back at them? It doesn't look good for us, does it? Nope. Thank you, Caleb. No, it doesn't look good for us. It makes us look bad in a lot of ways. If we were just quiet... And then when the, you'll see the, the untruths, the lies will go away. I think these days, definitely when, it's, um, when you hear about things that men have done or people have done in the, in the news, and when they come back and they deny it right away, you're like, oh, he probably did it. And usually when they're quiet, it just kind of goes away because it's usually not true. So we need to be that way. We need to be, Christ is our ultimate example. First Peter is big on that, showing how Christ is our example. Now, I'm speeding along here. So Paul goes to the next verse. Goes on in the verse next with gentle. 25, he says, With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, it perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. There is nothing 
more precious to me when I see or hear about a pastor who is so kind and gentle, even when confronted with false teachers, atheists, or just people being mean against them. And they keep their composure and they just stick to the word of God. It's such a Christ-like attitude and behavior. I've only experienced that a few times. But it is an amazing thing to see when a man of God stays that way. So gentleness also here can be translated as meek. And I think the word meek, we have uh, defined that a different way these days, right? So meekness, when you, when you hear of a meek man, what do you hear? Meek also means rhymes. Weak, right? And we know that we are not weak. But that's not what this means here. Jesus himself was called meek, but we know Jesus was not a meek man. Let's look at Jesus' life, for example, the ultimate example. Was he meek when he cleared the temple? And yes, I would say he was. He did it with authority, but he didn't do it for himself. He did it for God, right? He was under control. He wasn't doing it out of a selfish anger. He was doing it for God. It's a quote from MacArthur's book, Kingdom Living, Here and Now. Jesus never defended himself, but when they desecrated his father's temple, he made a whip and beat them. Meekness, say us, I'll never defend myself, but I'll die defending God. Twice, Jesus cleansed the temple. He blasted the hypocrites. He condemned false leaders of Israel. He fearlessly uttered divine judgment upon people, and yet the Bible says he was meek. For the Christian, therefore, meekness is power used only in the defense of God. That's the gentles and the meekness. So when we oppose false teachers, when we bring the word of God before them and we don't put up with their talk and we don't put up with their heresy, we don't put up with their lifestyle that is ungodly and we confront them with scripture for God, that is not being meek. That is the meekness of the Bible. And that is the gentleness that we're calling here. It doesn't mean you get loud and you get angry and you yell and you quarrel with them. You just present the word of God to them and you stick to the scriptures. And you don't back down. That's the biggest thing. You don't back down from false teachers. You keep the word there. When they don't want to listen anymore and they get tired of it, trust me, they'll walk away on their own because they don't want to deal with it anymore. Especially if you've ever been in an argument with somebody and you're really riled up and they're just staying calm. Do you stay in that conversation very long? No, usually you have to walk away because he's like, why can't I get you riled up to, you know? And they'll walk away. And that's the, that's the meekness that we need to have. Being gentle with those in opposition leads to the ultimate goal, and that is God granted them repentance and coming to God. That is the ultimate thing, right? Gentleness correcting those in opposition. So we're correcting those who are going against us. If perhaps, this is key, God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. We don't do it. We have no say in that. All we are called to do is to bring the word to them and to bring the correct word to them. God may grant them repentance. And that should be the ultimate goal. Have that in mind. When you are in battles with somebody with words over scripture and over stuff, the ultimate goal is not to win what you're saying and not to be right. The ultimate goal is to lead them to repentance. And that's what we should have. We shouldn't return fire with fire because that only escalates things. And we need to stay calm and understand the ultimate eternal goal is for their repentance. 
And this repentance means a full change in mind and thought and heart. It's a 180 degree turn that only the power of God's word can accomplish. And if you start getting in fights with that person, they're not going to listen to what you have to say. And always remember this too. When they are rejecting you, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. Now, should that make us feel better? Not necessarily, but it means you just keep bringing the word to them because they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. But 26, they were, verse 26 leads us to the ultimate. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. It's kind of a sad thing to think that believers could be held captive by Satan to do his will. But that is what the saying here. And when he's talking about come to their senses means that it's kind of like they've been snapped out of a hypnosis. It has the sense of uh, somebody who is inebriated, becoming sober, being able to get full function of their body again and their mind. That's what he's talking about when he says come to their senses. It's coming back to reality to get in the right state of mind. But like I said, it is sad to think that, that believers can fall into false doctrine and worldly ideas. But you know what God tells us? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's always power in Christ. There's always power in his word. So to be an honorable vessel, we need to make sure that we are cleansing ourselves from worldly things and worldly ideas. We need to make sure that we are coming to God and seeking righteousness, faith, love, and peace. We need to make sure that we are becoming humble vessels by ignoring foolish, ignorant speculations. We need to be humble by not being quarrelsome with those we come in contact with. We need to be gentle but not weak when it comes to approaching and going to up against false teachers. And if we do all those things, we are promised to be useful to the master. And then that our goal, we want to be useful to God. We want to do what he's asked us and called us to do. He has put us here for a reason and he will accomplish his goals. And we want to be a part of that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time again. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for uh, the blessing that it is to read that you have not left us alone here. Not only have you given us your spirit within us, you have filled us with other believers that we are supposed to come alongside and to pursue you with a pure heart with, Lord. But we are able to take these commands that Paul has laid out here for us to push aside the worldly things, the foolish things, the dumb things of this world, and all that stuff is that whatever's not in Scripture are those things. Your word is the truth, and it is the only truth. It is the way to righteousness. It is the way to faithfulness. It is the way to love, a pure love. It is the only way to, for peace with others. And Lord, I pray that as a congregation that we would be men and women who are pursuing those things daily. And Lord, help us to be gentle yet not weak when we confront those who are preaching ungodly false doctrine. Lord, help us to hold you up, to hold your word up as the highest standard. Help us not to be legalistic, but help us to be righteous. Christ, I'm going to pray. Amen.